Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. seven billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. So found in everything from the clothes we wear to the pillows we sleep on, cotton is one of the world's most ubiquitous textiles. It also happens to be one of the most controversial. So since its origins, the cotton industry has been inextricably linked to environmental and human exploitation, most notably that of the millions of African peoples brought forcibly to North America through the transatlantic slave trade, and then of course their descendants thereafter. So in many ways, this legacy survives today in the multitude of extant historic cotton garments in museum collections and personal archives around the world. Yes, and the complex stories are quite literally woven and sewn into the cotton garments we wear and have worn for centuries. And this is the subject of a new exhibition, which is entitled History is Rarely Black or White, which is now on view until March 20th, 2022, at Queen's University's Agnes Etherington Arts Center in Kingston, Ontario. And the exhibition features cotton garments from the Queen's collection of Canadian dress, which is comprised of over 2,500 pieces dating from the late 1700s all the way up to the 1970s. And while the inclusion of historic cotton garments in this exhibition is perhaps nothing new to us, it's how these garments are incorporated into the exhibition narrative that is really, truly groundbreaking. This exhibition sets a profound precedent for the exhibition and interrogation of garments that completely transforms the way in which clothing is typically used in exhibition spaces and fashion narratives. And it does this by extinguishing the line that traditionally divides the curatorial and conservation departments. Exhibition curator Jason Cyrus and exhibition conservator Anne-Marie Garin worked together to interrogate the very fabric of the garments on display in service of a larger narrative that highlights the intersections of not only conservation and curatorialship, but also cotton and colonialism, clothing and humanity, and the past and the present. After all, history is rarely black or white. And to tell us more, we are pleased to welcome Jason and Anne-Marie to the show. Jason and Marie, thank you so much for joining me today. Our pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. I'm so happy to be here. So before we learn all about your wonderful collaboration on this exhibition, I'm so excited to speak with you both. Can you each just tell us a little bit about yourselves and your professions and research interests? Uh, You want to start, Jason? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I like to call myself a fashion historian and storyteller. Um, I work across the lenses of curation and installation, and my work looks at connections between marginalization, cultural exchange, and again, using fashion as that lens to tell stories. And I primarily try to look at historical narratives and tease out connections to identity, to queerness, to uh, Blackness, and show a wider um, scope of history. We love fashion storytellers on dress. That's kind of why we do this podcast. <laughs> and what and about you? Dress. Yeah. <laughs> and what about you, Emery? 
Well, I'm an art conservator. I've been working in the field for about, I think, four or five years now. What really drew me to it is it's very, it's a multidisciplinary work. We need hand skills. We also need to understand science, to use science, and we also need to have an understanding of history and art history. And that's what really drew me to it is thinking about the world using these very traditionally siloed fields and bringing them together. Since I started working, I started noticing how the storytelling aspect is really the driving force of conservation. And so we can't start thinking about it. We can't think about it only as a scientific or um, an art historical thing. We have to start thinking about what we're preserving and for whom. So this collaboration with Jason um, is exactly the kind of thing that I want to be a part of. It's not separate from the story. It's not separate from the world. It's really using our skills to better tell a story. So the more I can be a part of that, the better. And yeah, this project is really where I want to keep going in my in this field. Yeah, and I'm really glad you said that too, because conservation is something that goes into each and every exhibition, but it's just not something that we're often made aware of as viewers. It's kind of like the silent party behind, there's all these people behind the scenes that are working to bring these exhibitions to life. And so that's something I really love about this exhibit is you really bring a lens to the conservation process and it's actually integrated really well into the story of the exhibition, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a bit. But we're, of course, here to discuss the exhibit, History is Rarely Black or White. And Jason, I would love if you could briefly introduce us to the key exhibition concepts and also discuss how you conceived and came up with this idea for this exhibition in the first place. As, you know, someone who identifies as queer, mixed race, and Black, um, my family's from the Caribbean. I'm from Guyana in South America. I've lived in Canada for half of my life. And I know from oral history, from family history, that our very identities have come about through things like the transatlantic slave trade and indentureship across the Caribbean and South America. And as an art historian, as someone who studies fashion history, on the other half, I have looked at art and fashion and textile material culture from a place of making and its materiality, the raw fabrics, the way garments are constructed and their social and political significance to its wearer and the epoch. And then on the other hand, um, again, as somebody who's racialized, understanding very much about um, political history and um, about activism, whether it be something that's a daily practice or within institutions and within cultural organizations. But these areas are rarely ever brought together. And I say that the exhibition, in a sense, is a selfish one because I'm hungry to see my story reflected. I'm hungry to see the stories of people who look like me reflected within institutions. And like I said, as someone whose identity is split between um, these three areas in terms of my lens and my interests, I know from the intersectionality of my very identity um, to uh, quote Kimberly Crenshaw, that in fact, all these histories are intermingled and intertwined and very much entangled, but we've siloed them, as Anne-Marie just said. We've siloed Black history, we've siloed, we've siloed dress history, we've siloed and how garments and objects can show that we're all connected. So the title speaks to that, that history is not just these separate um, entities, these separate uh, ways of seeing that, in fact, if we bring all our stories together, we can see how we are still connected. 
especially after last summer and the resurgence of the racial protests and a refocus on blackness and storytelling and racism and systemic oppression spurred on by the public murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others whose name we, we know and don't know. I really thought to myself, what do I need to see now to feel encouraged? What do I think my peers need to see now to feel encouraged? And what do I have to say as a curator, as a fashion storyteller? And in a sense, the exhibition began there. Uh, I started um, as the Isabel Bader Fellow in Textile and Conservation Research at the Agnes Eddington Center at Queen's University. There I met Anne-Marie Grand, who was also um, on a Bader Fellowship and in conservation. And what I love is that we were able to come together and look at what can these garments tell us? Speaking again, again, harking back to what I just said, where I know that there are these parallel histories that are not siloed, but are actually interconnected. And one of that is cotton. We're looking at cotton in the 1800s. Uh, we know from so many other types of study that if you're looking within the 1800s, you're thinking of slavery and cotton. But I personally go to every fashion exhibition um, that's ever opened in every city everywhere. And I've not, I don't think I've seen an exhibition that actually brings them together in a direct way from a perspective of storytelling and of placing the humanity of the individuals who are involved in um, the garments themselves, front and center. And that, I would say, is where the exhibition really comes about and really gives us the core, the heart of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think really on view is those connections, right, between the humanity of the people who are picking the cotton, et cetera, to the connections to how that cotton spread around the world, to the consumers who are complicit in the cotton and slavery trade. And then you also have these wonderful connections just between the past and the present, how those inform each other and really the significance of history and specifically fashion history in the present day conversation. So really such an incredible exhibition. So this exhibition, as I already mentioned, is very much a collaborative process between you both. We've certainly talked about the museum conservator's job on the show. Anne-Marie, I only think you're the second conservator we've actually had, which is something we probably should course correct a little more. <laughs> but we've talked about it. I mean, it's a highly important position. You prepare the garments for exhibition display, for instance. But Amory, your work is actually also, as I mentioned, a driving force behind the exhibition's narrative, which is something you don't often see in fashion history exhibits. So how did you two come to collaborate on this exhibition? And how did you come to the decision to make conservation such a, a driving force of the narrative? Well, I think it happened very organically because of, I think, the trust that we initially from the very beginning kind of had for each other's views and, and perspectives and skills. But I also want to say that I think as uh, conservators are always taught that our work is inextricably tied to the object's history, to the object's life that is about to happen, to continue happening as well. Because although we strive to make our work reversible, we inevitably change the object forever. So if you think about washing or cleaning something, you can't unwash it. You can't put that historical dirt or stain back on. And there might be some meaning in that stain. So it comes with a lot of responsibility. In my mind, that means that uh, we need to make sure that the object can continue telling stories for centuries to come. So perhaps even stories that we don't even know right now that the object can even tell. 
The work of conservators and curators, in my mind, are actually really quite similar because we see the stories that are that are in the garments or some of the stories that are in the garments. And the only difference really, well, perhaps not the only difference, but one of the, the major differences is that the conservation cannot be reimagined later. Once we've done something, it's done and it can't be undone. So if you're stitching into something and creating holes, uh, those holes are always going to be there. So we have to be careful as to how those changes can be reinterpreted later. Anyway, all that to say that I think in the conservation community, we already see that our work is a driving force of the narrative and we work that way because it's our ethical responsibility. And the difference with this show, I think, is more that Jason saw that already and was able to trust me in telling him what I was finding out. Also, as, as a conservator, working with a curator, a lot of the time we kind of see the intersection of the materiality of the garment and what the curator is trying to say or what the storyteller is trying to say. So the fact that we were able to trust each other is really what the, what created that driving force, I think. And just having a constant conversation about what we were finding out, what Jason was finding out in archival research and through discussions with artists and what I was finding out about the material of the objects. Um, and I, I really think this kind of collaboration is very, very fruitful in the moment of the storytelling process that is the show that is now. And I just hope that in the future, these kinds of collaborations can continue happening because they just, they just really bolster the storytelling capability of the object. Yeah, and I guess maybe I should clarify a little bit that when we say that it's that conservation is actually integral to the narrative, it's actually part of the show. So we actually can see the process that you took to identify cotton materials, not only cotton in the garments, but then also tracking where that cotton would have came from, which was this incredibly scientific process, which you're going to talk to in a little bit here. <laughs> but first, I want to talk a little bit about the cotton trade. Um, it should come as no surprise to our listeners that the cotton trade developed in tandem with not one, but actually two colonial projects. And maybe the second colonial project isn't talked about as much, actually. But the first is of course, the transatlantic slave trade, but it also happened and it happened because of indigenous land disposition, right? It's part and parcel of colonial project of these different European cultures spreading around, settler colonial cultures spreading around the world and extracting these resources and also bringing these resources, right? Bringing enslaved peoples to various places in the world. And Jason, can you just talk a little bit about the North American and Caribbean cotton trade and how it directly affected these groups? Absolutely. Um, as you so rightly mentioned, we cannot talk about fabric without talking about the plant. We cannot talk about the plant cotton without talking about land. And to speak of land without giving full credence to the indigenous nations that have taken care of the land across Turtle Island for millennia would be a complete disservice to say the least and a form of cultural genocide um, at its highest. So one of the things we've really tried our best to do in this exhibition is to ground the viewer again in land and to, to have them understand that everything that we've been chatting about, especially in recently in, in the last while in Canada, specifically around reconciliation um, and returning, rightly returning indigenous land claims to the nations and people groups from which um, they originated. Ties, this is a small part of that, I hope, to 
have us see how these histories are all connected in many ways. In terms of transatlantic slave trade, again, we cannot think of, if we cannot think of cotton without thinking of land, we can also not think of cotton without thinking of labor. The labor force had to come from somewhere. And the European superpowers, our colonial superpowers from the Dutch to the British, to the French, to the Spanish, all in many at different times colonized different parts of the world, but then relied on a trade of Africans. And I use the word Africans because to many folks like myself um, who come from different parts of the world and are dark skinned, the concept of someone being black is quite North American. So um, I was chatting with Damien actually, um, when we were creating the panel for uh, Damien Joel, one of the artists on the show, who is um, a Jamaican American. Um, we're chatting about this whole concept of blackness and identity in relation to a panel we were writing. And we had a really good chat about what it means like to be seen a certain way from the Western uh, white perspective and from the Western white gaze. And a huge part of the exhibition is to restore the humanity of that. So as far as uh, we're looking specifically with the exhibition at um, the influence of the Royal African Company that was founded under just before the reign of George I in the late 1700s, but um, how that company moved the largest, especially under our British rule, the largest number of Africans across the Atlantic, what's called the Middle Passage, and folks were forcibly settled in South America, the Caribbean, and the United States. We're looking at why there is such a diverse population in places like Brazil, Guyana, where I'm from, across the Caribbean, the southern United States, um, and Charmaine Nelson, an amazing trailblazing professor in Canada, has created uh, the new Institute for the Study of Canadian Slavery at Nova Scotia College of Art and Design. Um, I'm working with her on a separate fellowship in relation to that. And she's studying the ways that slavery was prevalent in Canada as well and is unknown. So this wider trade within slave um, of trafficking people across oceans and settling them forcibly within countries was actually predicated on cotton. This is an entirely different aside, but um, chintz uh, block printed, beautifully block printed fabrics um, that would have originated from India and the wider and the East um, were used as a trading tool to barter and trade with um, nations along the African coast for enslaved bodies. And when we think of how much fabric is tied into this history, both in terms of the removal of people and them being settled in different parts of the world and how cotton was a part of that transaction and then how they're being settled in these parts of the world so they can harvest and then cultivate cotton again and how entangled that history is, um, we, re we really realize that you cannot separate one from another. In terms of Caribbean slavery and how this all affects, again, the entanglement of it, indentured laborers would have come from after slavery was quote-unquote abolished. And I say quote-unquote because while slavery was abolished um, in the mid-1800s, um, and we're looking either from the influence of the Civil War in the United States from 1861 to 1865, or the staggered abolition um, throughout the colonies in the Caribbean, it continued in many different ways, whether it be through labor practices um, or treatment of um, folks, of individuals. And indentureship became a way of the British and the Dutch and the French um, finding a new labor force. So 
folks were brought from Portugal, from India, from China, and from other smaller islands, settled into the coasts of the United States and very much into the Caribbean and South America. And in fact, that's where my very identity comes from. My great-grandfather came from Madeira in Portugal. He came over on the boats, met my great-grandmother from um, what's now called Chennai in India. And, um, and they had my, gran- my grandfather and my, my father and my mom's side is similarly mixed and intermarriage with formerly enslaved folks in Guyana as well. So what's interesting is that, or I rather I should say, um, heartbreaking is that as folks were settled in different places, they're bringing their cultural practice with them and they're trying to hold on to some shred of humanity. And we see that in the ways that um, when folks are being settled along the southern coast of the United States, um, I'm here speaking specifically to the um, Gullah Geechee Nation that were settled between uh, the southern coast and the sea islands that occupy from just off the coast of from North Carolina all the way down to Jackson River, Florida. I'm use them as an example. They brought with them their their ways of tying headscarves, their scarification, their language. And the Gullah Geechee actually are an, an amalgamation of the different um, nations, and whether it be Angola. Gullah actually comes from a shortened form of Angola. And they basically, all of these nations from Sierra Leone, Angola, and all the way around along the coast that were taken via these ships and settled into the coast had to come up with a way of, of speaking with each other, of sharing language, of sharing culture, and the Gullah Geechee is the amalgamation of that. What's beautiful is that they somehow were able to share together and then still reclaim their humanity through song and as a specific this exhibition through dress. They would have been the ones uh, harvesting, um, planting, and being very much involved in cotton production through the brutality of enslavement in the Southern United States. A huge component of this exhibition is to return the humanity to this look at enslavement and labor. Looking at research, whether it be from amazing scholars like Anna Arbindian Kesson, who has written a book called Black Bodies, White Gold um, out of Princeton University, or um, other accounts of um, enslavement and its economic reach, whether it be uh, folks like Sven Beckert, um, whose research I know has been looked at uh, critically, especially quite, quite recently. But I found that, except for Anna's book, it's it's very hard to see humanity looked at in an economic way where the, the lives, the feelings, the, the very dignity of folks are addressed on a ledger in ways that um, you look at the size of the shipbuilding and how ships were increased in size to be able to pack more people in below deck. Um, in the exhibition, we have a plan of the, of the slave ship, the Booker's, that was um, expanded under the whole to, in the many layers, to basically shackle men and women from head to foot. Um, and when we read accounts that only one third of folks survived the Middle Passage, and you're shocked by that, but then to see the plan of a ship that held folks in this way where they were, they were chattel, they were inhuman objects that were sold and bartered just as much as fertile land, ships that could um, withstand the voyage well. And this is where the collaboration with um, Anne-Marie was, I think, so powerful, is to 
to bring these lenses together and to use science and conservation as a way of showing folks that we have to see these histories as entangled and together. And science is not coming alongside to finally say, yes, this entanglement is true. It's coming along to bolster and to reinforce oral history and cultural history um, by showing us where the cotton is coming from. And the contemporary artists are showing us the legacy of the transatlantic slave trade that while it is historic and while it is something that we see as in the past, its legacy lives with us today in systemic oppression and um, systemic racism. Yeah, and you actually just led me right into my next question because one of the key themes of the exhibition is locating the geographic sources of the cotton, which you just referenced. So the cotton used in the garments that are featured in the exhibit. And this is, of course, where Anne-Marie's expertise comes in. And I want to hear all about your process, Anne-Marie, but first, how did you both, I think you collaborated, how did you choose which garments to interrogate in microscopic detail, literally? And this first criteria is clearly that they needed to be made of cotton, but were there any other factors besides their content, their fiber content that went into your selections? Um, yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was quite a long process of looking at, at what was present in the Agnes, the, the garments that were present in the Agnes. Um, thinking about how we wanted to frame the garments that we chose. So did we want to frame them in a specific time frame? Did we want to really include garments that went well beyond the 19th century? Or are we really focusing on the strength of, of the Agnes's collection? So it really started with looking at on just the database, all of the, the garments that had cotton components, because that's another aspect of it is it's not just the beautiful exterior of the garment that will necessarily be made of cotton, but cotton was used throughout the entirety of the garment. So sometimes it's just the lining, sometimes it's some ribbons or some ties, sometimes it's just the thread. Um, so we had to think about whether we wanted to represent cotton in every aspect of the garment or just basically what will also be visibly cotton from the outside. So when the viewer comes in, will they identify oh yes, this is recognizable to me as cotton. Whereas in, in some of our garments, the exterior is silk. So you might come in and say, well, that's a silk garment, but the interior, the lining is cotton. So we wanted to choose the 19th century, firstly, because the collection of garments in the Agnes is really strong in that time period. So there's that aspect. And there's also the aspect of historically, looking at uh, when slavery was occurring in North America, that is a really strong period where there was a lot um, more cotton being uh, cultivated and slavery being used really extensively in North America. Not that it wasn't happening before, but the production of cotton from North America really soared during that time period. Um, it, and it's also when Great Britain abolished slavery, in quotation marks, abolished slavery in the 1830s. And we were really interested in seeing, okay, so they decided that on, in their own terms, they possibly didn't want to include a specific type of slavery, but they were still going to import cotton from North America where slavery was really prevalent. So it's all very, uh, just a, a political maneuver rather than it being like an actually, we think slavery is wrong and we will not profit from this form of labor. And then also of course the civil war in the United States and looking at how the relationship between countries in the world changed because of what the view of slavery was and how, how that is represented in the cotton supply chain, essentially. <laughs> 
So we really focused on the 19th century for that reason. So after we kind of had looked at all the garments that we wanted to look at, Jason came to Kingston and we both met at the Agnes Etherington Art Center. So this was during the pandemic. So it was a little bit uh, difficult to uh, actually meet in the same place and look at the garments. But we had a, a, a very intense couple of days looking at all the garments that were on our list and trying to see from a curatorial perspective, what was meaningful but also what garments we want to put together that tell a story. So for example, we chose many garments that represent um, a very full view of society. So we have women's garments, men's garments, children's garments. There's a garment that we figured out throughout our process was probably for a pregnant woman, it was probably maternity clothing. So really showing how the cotton supply chain is integrated into every aspect of society. And then, of course, the last aspect of what we were thinking about is whether these garments can be shown be due to their physical condition. So if we have the time to really spend on conserving these garments and how we can make them all kind of um, come together and tell the story appropriately all at the same time. So that was really the process of choosing the garments. I don't know if, Jason, you want to add anything to that. So this whole notion of how cotton was implicated in so many aspects of dress uh, during, during the 1800s. So what we did is we created this long list and then we had a short list based on all the factors of curatorial and mounting and conservation. Um, and what speaks to, and as a curator, I also knew that I wanted the exhibition to represent the Agnes's collection well. So these are many of them, um, especially the day dress, which you will speak to very soon, is the most historically significant garment the ex exhibition has. But a lot of the other garments have never been shown in the institution's history. So um, to allow us to give, to give that a voice and to tell their story. And then from there, we also thought of a test case for the isotope testing. So we used the 1800s as our period for all the amazing reasons Anne-Marie just said, politically and historically. But we decided to go a little bit before and a little bit after. So the garments actually start from 1790 and 1790 and end at 1902. So we've got a little bit of buffer on either side. And then we chose garments that um, we wanted a number of garments that were just before the American Civil War in 1861. So we could kind of see what there was an influence between the um, where cotton was coming from just before. We chose a few garments that were right in the middle of the Civil War, and then we chose a few garments that were the tail end of the 1800s. So from the data, we can actually not just use the garments to be able to look at the supply chain, but see specifically how the influence of these historic and political events, like the abolition of slavery in the UK, the American Civil War, the influence of the revolution in Haiti, and how that kind of put the pressure on the American South to produce cotton and just to see how, what the garments and their circa dates around those periods would be reflecting based on that, those political um, events. I just wanted to add to, uh, to your point about microscopy, Jason. It's actually really, it can be really difficult to identify fibers just visually. You know, if you have a lot of practice looking at garments, you, you might do a really good job at it, but there's always something that's gonna throw you off and that you think is something, but it's gonna be something else. So in the database, just because microscopy isn't always available, sometimes there's some errors. 
And so um, it was really interesting also to be able to correct the database by saying, actually, we originally thought that this was this was cotton, but it's actually a really, really, really fine wool, which was very, very interesting for the history of that garment as well. Um, so I just wanted to mention that. <laughs> yeah, and it's pretty amazing that you can determine this with the microscope, right? So you get in there and you actually see the single fiber and you're able to look at the single fiber and see if it has, you know, those ridges that would indicate that it has wool or, you know, I'm hearkening back to my FIT conservation class to remember this. But um, it's super fascinating that you can get that close and determine. And of course, there's like burn tests you can also do to determine some of these things. But you really want to do what's the minimal harm to the garment, right? Yeah, there's lots of different ways of identifying materials. Um, and it's all a question of, like you said, uh, what impact you want to have on the garment in the end and also what's ethically okay for the garment to go through, depending on the community that it comes from. I would love to hear a little bit about your process. Jason briefly mentioned isotope testing. Um, Maybe describe it in a way that someone who has no scientific (laughs) training can understand. But you actually went through quite a thorough process in determining not just the material, but then the age of the material and the location of the material as well. I have to preface this by saying that I, I'm i not the expert who did the isotope analysis, um, but I see myself really as, and I think a lot of conservators see themselves as a bridge, kind of between a bridge between art and science. So I think a lot of us come from a science background and can do a lot of this work. And some of us, like myself, don't. But I would say I know I have uh, studied enough science in my conservation pathway to be able to know what we can do to answer some of the the questions that curators and communities have about uh, their objects. Um, So one of the first questions that Jason brought up to me was about the origins of the cotton, where it would have come from. And I'll be honest, I didn't even know that if this was possible But I did a a little bit of research and actually found out that isotope analysis is being used in contemporary cotton objects because it's very difficult actually to trace the supply chain of cotton and many other materials to the original farm that it came from. And because cotton continues to this day to be harvested sometimes by child labor, sometimes by slave labor, uh, a lot of companies are very interested in making sure that their cotton is ethically sourced. So isotope analysis is becoming quite big in identifying where cotton comes from for these companies that want to be able to promote and market their their cotton as being ethically sourced. That is fascinating. Yeah, (laughs) it kind of comes all full circle, right? So having um, seen these articles and read a little bit about it, I was curious to see if I could find somebody nearby that could actually do isotope analysis. And I found QFIR, so it's the Queen's Facility for Isotope Research uh, at Queen's University. Um, And I reached out to them and they were immediately interested. And so it kind of all happened very serendipitously (laughs) that everybody was kind of interested in collaborating. And I think for them as well, it was a project that was taking them a little bit outside of their comfort zone, a little bit outside of what they're used to doing. So they were were really interested in, in helping out and seeing what they could do. So... I can try to give a brief overview of what isotope analysis is. We should give a disclaimer that while the testing process started, I would say uh, late spring, early summer, um, and wrapped up uh, about three weeks ago, we've done the testing. The 
raw data has been generated. And because, as Anne-Marie just said, this is quite unprecedented, there are few people who can interpret the data. So um, Dr. Dan Layton Matthews, who is the um, an associate professor here at Queen's University and co-director of the isotope facility, is um, one of the few people who can actually interpret the data. So um, he's collaborating with us and he is in the process of matching the data sets to the garments. So as we, as Anne-Marie describes the data um, and just the process, we are still on the edge of receipts ourselves. So, and yeah. that will be layered on probably in the next week and a half or so. And um, Evelyn Leduc was the research associate that, um, at Kiefer who Anne-Marie collaborated with. So just wanted to say, to give a shout out and to thanks to them as well. Yeah, they've been really the driving force behind the isotope analysis being able to happen. Um, and I'm, I'm so grateful to them uh, because, as I said, I didn't even know that this was possible until about a year ago. And they really kind of helped me through the process of understanding. So one of the uh, really important aspects of this isotope research is that we do have to sample from historic garments. So at the beginning, we didn't even know if that would be possible because how much do you need to sample? If you have to sample a whole gram of cotton uh, from historical garments, that's not really feasible. So we had to go through a whole set of uh, pilot tests, essentially, to just see how much material we actually need to collect to get data. So the first part of, of this job was actually to collect a bunch of different samples of cotton, historical cotton, contemporary cotton, um, and essentially cotton that we we knew its origin already so that at the end of the process we can compare the data from the cotton where we we know where it comes from and compare that data to the historical garment so that we are able to correlate the data from what i understand the basis is that plant materials and other materials that grow from the earth or that animals that eat plants from the earth each material has like a, a certain amount of isotopes that accumulates over time in their system based on where they are geographically. And that is really due to kind of the crust of the earth, where they are, um, the water systems that are around them, how much it rains that year. So it's really about environmental factors and geological factors. Uh, and that ends up being kind of a blueprint of where, or fingerprint, if you will, of where that plant grew, where that animal roamed, uh, et cetera. And so the idea is that if you can run a fiber from a cotton plant, for example, through, um, I think it's GCMS, so gas chromatography mass spectrometry, basically it'll tell you how much of each isotope it has accumulated over time. And the amount of isotopes from different elements that it has accumulated over time is going to tell you, well, plants from this region tend to accumulate that many isotopes over time um, in this time period in this geological region. So from that blueprint, we can usually have kind of a general area of where that plant grew. So it's not necessarily going to be able to tell you it grew on this specific farm in South Carolina. It's possible that it'll be very specific, but that takes a lot of other data around it um, because essentially what you're doing is you're comparing data. So if you don't have a lot to compare with, you the less you have to compare with, the less certain you can be, essentially. So that's my understanding of it. And what I take from it as well is the more samples we can do, the more of this research we can do, the more we built this database, 
the more specific we can be with this information. So in my mind, this project doesn't end here. <laughs> this project is like basically the very beginning of, oh, this is possible. Let's take it to the next level where we can test a lot more cotton across a much wider time span and really get a very good understanding of how cotton moved around the world, depending on the time period. Uh, and uh, that's, that's my very broad understanding of isotope analysis and what we can do with it. And to add into the, we just said about the, the data set, we, when we were chatting with um, Daniel and, and Evelyn about what kind of library of data set they had to compare the historical cotton to what, you know, these signatures or this kind of this uh, fingerprint, like you said, Anne-Marie, that is geographically linked to kind of shore up or bolster the information they had, we purchased samples of cotton grown and produced in Texas in South Carolina and Georgia and Sea Island cotton. Um, so we added, um, just to like she was just saying, to be able to have something um, to compare to in terms of that geographic signature. So they would have even more data specific to this field that they could cross-reference and see where it is. So what, what actually gets produced out of this raw data is a series of uh, like latitude points and will get in theory is um, a latitude signature for that specific garment. And if we're looking at the map, this is where you bring in cartography and, geograph and geography and you know, just knowledge of climates. If let's say you've got um, a latitude where on one side you've got somewhere on the West Coast and you've got on the East Coast somewhere like uh, New England or you're going further into Maryland, and you've got that, that geographic signature. We know from the history of looking at cotton and where cotton would have been grown, that it would be coming therefore from Maryland and not from somewhere, let's say like Seattle, where there's not a very developed history of cotton being grown in Seattle, just based on the weather patterns and what we have as this historical data. So it's that bringing together the conservation and what's coming from the raw data, as well as from uh, historical research. Yeah, and you've already talked a little bit about this earlier, but um, what's super fascinating about these connections you'll be making once these results come back is about the cotton supply chain, right? These connections between America and Canada specifically, and basically how Canadian and British consumers were implicated in the demand for cotton and the human cost of cotton by using enslaved labor while themselves claiming, no, we don't participate in slavery. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's just, it's that entanglement, right? It, that's specifically why Anne-Marie and I, when we're looking at the garments earlier this year, we really wanted to show a subset of society from a beautifully handmade christening gown, um, which I believe would have been made by the mother or family members of the newborn baby, to men's wear, to children's wear, to um, beautiful wedding dresses. Because that this is something that permeated all aspects, all type of consumers were implicated in this cotton trade. The day dress, which is one of um, the major garments that we're looking at that dates to 1825, based on its fabric, which would have been, it's we can tell by looking at it and from the historical research that it's one of the first examples of roller printed cotton. Block printed cotton, hand block printed cotton in India, referring to the chintz trade that I referenced earlier, that was a huge part of transactions um, for enslaved people and the slave trade, but also this thirst for luxury and luxury cotton dominated um, the cotton trade. And the British, in their way of trying to usurp that market, 
as well as in conjunction with other parallel um, economies, really pushed this notion of the role of printed cotton, where there was a machine that was invented that was able to print, um, instead of having to block print um, these beautiful colors and through RISD-I techniques, um, was able to print during a roller printed technique, floral sprays and botanical prints onto the cotton itself, that therefore made access to garments like these that much more de democratic and reduced the price. That being said, there were all still luxury items that uh, were well out of reach of, of regular folk. But the woman who wore this dress, Helen back, who lived in Kingston, we can ascertain by, again, previous research done on this dress by the Bader Fellow before me, Vanessa Nichols, that um, her husband um, owned a fine goods retailer here in Kingston, and due to his access and his prominence, would have either imported for her um, the loomed finished printed garment, and she would have had it made up in Kingston by a local dressmaker, or based on her wealth, she would have traveled to Europe and bought the dress already, and had the dress made there and then brought it back. Her son, Henry Mowat, was the third premier of Ontario. So we can think of power and privilege in class and that dress's biography, but then the dress was made in 1825. This way predates American, so the American Civil War, and we can already think of, hmm, where is the cotton coming from that's specific to this dress? That's another part of this dress history. So when the analysis is finally done for this garment, I think we'll, because it's the garment we know so much the most about in our collection, will be able to tell its full history, its full biography, implicating Canada, Canadian consumer, the uh, trade of cotton, commerce, wealth, status, but also enslavement across North America and the world. Yeah, I think this, you have several different interventions, contributions, you know, to the field of fashion history in this exhibition. But this is definitely one of them in that you're really presenting a methodology that is inspiring, hopefully, future curators and conservators to look at their collection like with completely new eyes because you take it for granted, right? This is an 1830s roller printed cotton dress. We've studied the cotton. We've studied this in all these different ways, but you haven't studied the cotton in this way and the supply chain of the cotton in this way. So as you've just alluded to, and as this exhibition shows us, there's this entirely new way to look at these collections, not just cotton, but silk wool. It can be done in, in all of these different ways. So very, very cool. I want to talk about another incredibly important intervention in this exhibition, and it's your use, Jason, of what you call archival imagining. This is an incredibly creative and innovative approach to the archive that you used to illustrate the clothing worn by previously enslaved individuals in Canada, and you do that by using a combination of 10 tight photographs and garments from the collection, and I've never seen this before. So I thought this is, is incredible what you've done. And I'd love if you can just discuss this approach using maybe a few specific examples from the exhibit. Oh, absolutely. That's incredibly kind of you to say. Just to set it up for our listeners, how we've ended up in the Underground Railroad is that the first gallery or the um, gives you the wider cotton supply chain. And then we start to narrow down into looking at who's picking the cotton, who's harvesting the cotton based on the Gullah Geechee Nation and their story. And then we're following their history via the Underground Railroad and of folks like them into Canada. And to that end, um, I worked with, um, and I looked at archival tintypes 
and Cartier-Bizet's precursors to modern photography at the collections in Queens, at Queens University and at the Ontario Archives. And what I love about these images is that you're seeing formerly enslaved individuals. And again, we can tell that based on the time, the circa date of the images themselves. I'll speak to one very specifically soon, as well as some documents actually have their names and a bit of their stories. And these are formerly enslaved individuals who made their way through the Underground Railroad into what was called Upper Canada at the time, what we now know as lower, the lower parts of Ontario just across the river from uh, New York State and um, from Detroit. and But you're seeing beautifully dressed Black people staring directly at the camera sometimes. Sometimes they're pensive. They may be solo. They may be in pairs, whether it be familially or romantically. And they are gorgeously turned out in dresses, in corsetry, in tailored goods, vests and frocks and hats and gloves. And what I love about these images is they're in the faces of the people and in the manner in which they inhabit these, the clothing they're wearing, you can tell one, it's their own clothing because um, it's too well fitted and too well styled to their bodies for it to be stock garments that um, the photographer would have just had on hand for them to wear. Two, we know, um, again, of archival historic research that enslaved people use their dressmaking skills not just as a local economy between themselves, but within the plantation house to mend the clothing of the plantation owners. And then a lot of them use those skills to buy back their own freedom. We can think of Abraham uh, Lincoln's wife's uh, dressmaker. Elizabeth Keckley. Thank you. Thank you so much. So that's just one example of many, many of that of examples like that. But there's a self-possession in that in, the, in these images that really powerfully speaks to me, where they are finally saying first and foremost to themselves, but also to the viewer looking at them that this is who I am. This is who I've always known myself to be, not as an economic cog in this cotton supply chain, as someone who is just seen as a labor element, but as a human being with dreams and hopes and a vision for myself and what I could be and the way in which they use clothing to do that. Um, I must always give credit where credit is due and uh, Julie Crooks, an amazing curator in her own right um, at the Art Gallery of Ontario, first looked at, I'm looking at six images. Julie looked at, I believe, over 100 images across other collections, as well as the ones I'm looking at in a show called Free Black North in 2017 at the Art Gallery of Ontario. And Julie's a dear mentor of mine. And I'm building on her work. Um, but as you said, this is the first time we're pairing garments and tintypes. The reason why I'm calling it archival imagining is that there's so much that's unknown about first the folks in the tintypes. Uh, many of them say their names are unidentified. Um, sometimes we know their names, and it's those stories that I've tried to tell specifically to the six tintypes I'm looking at. Or we have um, our, an archival, this archival document called a North Side View of Slavery. And while we know of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which we already are, which, which we are also showing um, Harriet Beecher Stowe's allegorical account of enslavement through the Ongong Railroad that was a huge part of spreading awareness of the brutality of slavery. A North Side view of slavery is the actual account of specific individuals in their journey throughout the Ongong Railroad into Canada. We know people's names, we know where they settled, 
We know specifics of the experiences. However, we don't have their photographs. So it's this interesting thing where we have story with no photographs. And sometimes we have photographs and names with no story. Similarly, still, we have these garments, beautiful black dyed garments. Small aside, we actually, there was a second part of this, of our research fellowships that looked at dyes and the provenance of dyes. And we did a whole scientific testing to find out where the dyes were coming from. But it would have been, as you can tell, the arc of this project is quite ambitious. So we wanted to focus the story on cotton, but hopefully someone can come alongside and take the research that's in the files and run with that. But these garments, unless it's something like the day dress that was where we know who was given by, how it was worn. And generally speaking, you're looking at white wealth uh, in terms of the provenance of garments. There's so many of the garments where we don't know its maker, we don't know its wearer. So I thought to myself, of asking myself, what archives, what type of interdisciplinary lens can we bring together to restore the humanity and the lost stories of the folks we're seeing in the tintypes? First of all, why don't we have their garments? Why don't we have their stories? And we can think of how garments end up in collections. Many museum collections, um, the Agnes being one of them, places like the Met and the VNA, are filled with fabulous haute couture garments. But that representing the pinnacle of society, we can think of who gives those garments, who wears those garments, and what happens to the rest of society in clothing that preserves their stories. So because we, there was so much we did not know, I wanted to imagine this way of bringing archives together to be able to see the humanity and the stories of these folks and these tintypes anew. So we're pairing the tintypes, and Marie and I were able to uh, pair garments that kind of were replicated in the tintypes. There is a beautiful tintype of a woman from, I believe it is the 1870s. Um, and she's dressed in a beautiful formal dress of an over jacket, corseted, and a ruched skirt. And she's got a beautiful white blouse uh, that peeks out uh, over her jacket. Her hair is beautifully styled and she stares directly at you in the camera um, through the camera's lens. And we've paired that close by with a gorgeous black formal gown with ivory vines and purple uh, violet flowers that circled the garment with a bustle that's very similar. And it's this whole notion of like, well, this could be her dress. And we can ask ourselves, what happened to her dress? What happened to her story? What is it that we need to kind of bring together to re-see who she was? We have a tintype of um, Jim Johnson, who was a Kingston barber for over 40 years, locally here in Kingston, and Jennifer McKendry, a historian here, has done a lot of work to unearth, unearth his history. He was born here in Ontario, um, and his father is an American who was born in Ohio in 1831. So again, going back to archival imagining, if his father was born and bringing together the history if his father was born in Ohio in 1831, and we can think of what jobs were available to, to, to Black men growing up in the 1830s, he would have reached adulthood just before, or at least during and just before uh, the impact of the Civil War. And Ohio, of course, and Detroit being very closely linked to the Underground Railroad and not far off from Maryland and Cotton, he likely would have been enslaved himself and then escaped into Canada through the Underground Railroad, or he would have been born free. We don't know. Um, and Jim, in his tintype, 
is wonderfully dressed in this black frock, a frock coat and a vest. And we've paired that with uh, a black coat and a vest from the, uh, from the Agnesis collection, whose identity we don't know. What I find fascinating about Jim's history is that while he was a well-known Kingston barber, he cut um, John A. MacDonald, our first prime minister's hair, and that's written on the back of the tintype. And he is as Canadian and as Ontarian as it gets because of his birth and his connection to place. He's noted in the 1871 census as being African. So this whole notion of who gets to be Canadian, who gets to be seen as North American, and whose identity is still seen as other. So bringing together his story, the, his garments that are similar to what he's wearing, and actual accounts of folks in a Northside view of slavery, that book is going to be open to the to pages from the book and account, actual accounts. It's this whole notion of imagining again, what would an archive holding these stories look like? And what can we imagine what an archive can tell us? What do we need archives now to do? And as you said quite earlier, hoping that we can start to ask new questions and use new methods of telling complete stories of everyone's history. Absolutely. And Dr. Jonathan Michael Square, who's been on the show and works a lot on enslaved clothing and the history of enslaved clothing, wrote this wonderful article last year that basically said the same thing. It's no longer enough to have this excuse that we don't have clothing of the previously enslaved or freedmen and women in our collections, so we can't tell those stories. And you're so clearly saying, no, here's a way to use these collections that historically were collected to celebrate white uh, men and women's histories and to remember white men and women's histories. And here's a way that we can reimagine these histories and tell these very true stories using these collections in ways that have never been done before. Because especially in today's day and age, there's absolutely no excuse for not getting creative with these archives. And you see people do it all the time in books. There's so many important interventions by historians looking at traditionally colonialist, white supremacist archives and still finding voices of the enslaved or the subaltern. And you're showing how you can also do that with museum collections. So such an incredible, incredible contribution to the field. I can't say it enough. <laughs> We, we are all very grateful for, for, for that. Thank you. Thank you. I, I say we because it's an entire team of collaboration and artists and conservators. So thank you so much for seeing us in this way. Yeah, I mean, you're really setting a new standard. And I, and I hope and I know a lot of curators will sit up and kind of pay attention because this really is such an important intervention about how to do this work. And I hope to see this translate into exhibitions in the future. So thank you both so much for being here. This is so incredible. And before I let you go today, I would just love to hear from you both what this experience has taught you. You've certainly taught us a lot. I'm sure you've learned a lot as well. What do you hope visitors also will take away from this exhibition? Well, I think that this experience has taught me a lot about having conversations in my work um, and also how these traditionally siloed fields uh, do so much better when they're actually not siloed. <laughs> and we have conversations between different disciplines and we have conversations between curators and scientists and artists and how we can tell really, really powerful stories uh, if we just talk to each other <laughs> and trust each other with our skills. Um, and what I hope visitors and listeners uh, take away from the exhibition is really, well, what the exhibition says, that everything that we wear 
everything uh, that we go through in our daily lives is inextricably linked to our past and also very specifically to our colonial past and to our capitalist past as well. So all of these things are inextricable from each other, even up to today. So uh, the fact that we used isotope analysis, which is being used on contemporary garments, to think that these two things are not separate. What is happening with cotton today is also an issue. <laughs> We're not separate from the material world. Whatever we are, we are participating in the world today. Um, the same way that folks in Kingston were participating in the world in their day. And that meant participating in slave labor uh, and, and in the transatlantic slave trade. So um, I guess that would be the thing I think people can take away. Um, and, and, you know, some of the same things that I learned as well about how breaking apart these silos helps tell really powerful stories. And Jason? Yes, uh, for me, um, one thing I hope folks take away from the show is that specifically to Blackness, our lens, our way of seeing uh, Blackness is being authored, and this is for also for across any marginalized way of seeing, whether it be uh, from queer folks, folks who are differently able, in many ways, that lens of seeing the author as separate from and who is seen as the centered has a historical precedent. Um, and as Henry just said, to understand who we are in the present, we must look at the past to really get it. Um, everyone was so shocked the last summer the, with the racial uprisings. Like, oh my goodness, these stories were here before, specifically within Canada. Canada has a very um, complicated history with its racism. Donovan Bailey, former Olympic athlete, likes to say that in Canada, racism serves as a smile, whereas in the States, it might be a lot more overt and in your face. And a lot of folks were so shocked that, you know, a lot of people came forward to share their stories of, of being treated differently. But if you look at the history of how these things all took hold, there is precedent. And this is where, in a sense, I believe the colonial project becomes part of this economic framework where it becomes systemic. It was happening for many years before, but there's a tie of colonialism and capitalism and commercialism that really, really start to make this systemic. So to ask ourselves, and this is where the contemporary artists come in, like whose experiences are different in the world and why? Where does that come from? And how can we use history to tell those stories? For me, I'm learning on this project, um, as Anne-Marie just said, collaboration is such a huge part. Our field is too siloed and too broken apart by this notion of singular genius. Audre Lorde says like the quote about um, dismantling the master's house and how you're gonna use the tools to do that. We've got to think outside of the box. We can't use the tools of these siloed structures to break down the structure. We have to see that we've all got something to give. We all have something to share and we're all building on, on each other's work so we can actually create a new space. Yeah, and fashion and the clothed body, so much part of this conversation as it was in the past, as it was today, both in, in form of colonialism and oppression, but also resilience, right, and subversion. All of these themes are on view in this wonderful exhibition. And thank you both so much for being here. Our thank pleasure. you so much. Thank you. 
April, I cannot tell you how blown away I am by this exhibition, both in the ways in which they broke down the barriers between conservator and curator, harnessing science and technology in service of expanding traditional exhibition narratives and methodologies, but also Jason's incredible approach to the Queen University's fashion archive that imagines the sartorial realities and thus humanity of the many photograph subjects on display. It's truly incredible. And dress listeners, another very important aspect of this exhibition is that we have yet to discuss is its engagement with contemporary art and fashion in an examination of Cotton's colonial history and legacy. And this is done while also envisioning a, quote, radically positive future. To do so, the exhibition features the work of three contemporary artists, Karen Jones, Gordon Shadrach, and Damien Joel. So you're going to want to tune in on Thursday's episode when Jason will be back to introduce us to their work before we are joined by Damien himself, who shares insights into his work, Songs of the Gullah. Dress listeners, you have until March 20th, 2022 to see the exhibition in person at Queen University's Agnes Etherington Art Center in Kingston, Ontario. If you cannot make it in person, be sure and check out the exhibition website, which we will link to in our show notes. There you will also find the link to register for their incredible online speaker series on topics related to the exhibition. So be sure and check it out. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the history and the humanity of the cotton in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. We love hearing from you. So if you would like to email us, you can do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episodes. You can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each and every week. More dress coming your way on Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.